Okay, uh, this morning I'm going to read from Luke, the seventh chapter, but as Jariel was sharing in Psalm 42, uh, he went and uh, from Psalm 42, 1 through 7, and then, then a little bit further. Uh, that, that, that's a picture there. And of course, when it says in, in Psalm 42 and verse 7, all your waves and your billows went over me, uh, that is referring to a Christ on Calvary in our place, dealing with all of those things that would cause that discouragement because all the waves of all of us, those that are his, and that he has made his through those individuals receiving Christ um, as the Savior. So when it says that, it's speaking about the cross. One thing we do know for sure, uh, in Psalm 22 and verse 1, this was, was a prophecy of the cross, what was actually going on on the cross. And when Jesus cried out in Matthew 27 and verse 46, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when he said, my God and my God, he was saying, my God, in terms of his father, because he always did those things in John 8, verse 29, that pleased him. And then when he said, the second, my God, he was always led by the Holy Spirit. And on Calvary, when he took our sins upon him, God had to forsake him while he dealt with those so that he wouldn't forsake us. And so the answer to that in Psalm 22 and verse 1, David was saying, but that was said in the spirit of Christ. He's, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in Psalm 42, when it's talking about the soul, that's self-consciousness. Okay, that's, that's self being its object and not Christ. And God will use that to lead us to him. And the thought, I had similar thoughts this morning. There, there is so much, in one sense, there's so much of the beautiful, incredible teaching that, that is ours in Christ. It's just so big. And that has to do with Ephesians 3 and verse 19, where it says, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. And of course, that simply means that we're never going to come to the end of the fact of how deep and eternal and incredible his love is for us. We're never going to come to the end of that. Now here, here we do thirst. We do thirst. And we do know, like the woman at the well in John 4, 1 to 14, and of course when Jesus again said it in John uh, chapter 7, right to the 38th verse there, when you're thirsty, okay, what do you do when you're thirsty? You have to come and drink. And so God will use the thirst of the self-consciousness of the soul that thinks apart from him. Because he would never, you know, God would never leave us nor forsake us. Furthermore, he, in Isaiah 30, verse 18, he is waiting to be gracious, but he has to cause the thirst to be in us even before we come. And really, that just is coming to the end of ourself of self-help and self-hope and any single thing that we can do. And that's our lesson that we'll learn. And that's even why it says in 1 John 2, verse 15, we know we should not love the world system, but neither the things that are in the world. In other words, we should never place those things that he gives us 
above the most important thing, his love for us. So Jesus said, in, in, again, in Matthew 27 and verse 46, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we know through the scriptures that God will never forsake us, ever. And we know that in, in Hebrews 13, verse 5, where it says, I will never, what? No, never, no, never leave you nor forsake you. He never leaves us. But he has to bring us to a place of thirst in self so that we continue to go after him. So he draws us by a need that we can't meet. And that's continual learning. And, and then a continual feeding. The thing that I thought this morning, and I know I've shared this for us over the years, uh, the woman that was, that was at Jesus' feet and, and she was just weeping. She was weeping. And I've thought of that and I thought of myself like, like that woman many, many different times uh, at his feet just, just weeping. But here's the beautiful thing about that we have in Christ, the beautiful thing about the fact that, we, that he loves us. Because there's a Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word is hashak, and we've shared this before, it's H-A-S-H-A-Q, hashak. And you know what that means? It means it's a love that has won us and keeps us and will never let us go. And in Isaiah 30 and verse 18, so then all he's doing is waiting to be what? Gracious. But there's where the word comes in, which is when the word comes in, it's coming from Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit because of the desire that he has for us of intimacy. So if we have a desire for intimacy, does intimacy have to do with the depth of his love for us? And it does. But it's his love and his desire for intimacy with us that even actuates our love and our desire for intimacy with him. And if that's the case, and it is, then there's only one place that he's waiting for us, and that's what? To, to be gracious. We shared before in John 1 and verse 16 where it says, he's given us grace upon grace. And, and there, it's, it never says truth upon truth, because truth is one. It's Jesus Christ in John 14, 6. And that's what's necessary for us to be sanctified, set apart from the soul experientially, so that we experience our position in him, his desire for us of intimacy. So that desire that actuates my desire for intimacy with him that brings us into a place experientially of what he's made us to be. And what is that? We're one with him. And it's a love that will never, ever let us go. But it's just waiting to be gracious. And here is Luke, the seventh chapter. It start in verse 29. It says, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God, being baptized with the baptism of of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God. They were, in other words, they were rejecting Christ against themselves. Notice what it says? Against themselves. Being not baptized of him, meaning not having received him and entering into the baptism of death. Because what we must remember is that baptism has to do with death. 
and thank God in Romans 6, 1 through 6, we've been baptized through his death. And then in Romans 6, verse 9, he that dies once in Christ, in Colossians 3 and verse 3, he that dies once, what? It, he dies no more. There's not, so death is not the proper experience of the Christian. That's the thing that he's separating from us. And he does so by drawing us with this love life that he has for us. And so, in verse 31 of Luke 7, it says, And the Lord said, Whereunto will I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? He said in verse 32, They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, and, and you say he had a demon. He's a devil. He speaks from the devil. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. Notice what it says here. A friend of publicans and sinners. A friend. And he, for us, is much more than a friend. He desires an intense intimacy of oneness. But he was a friend, he was saying. He was a friend of publicans and, sis, and, and sinners. In verse 35, it says, but wisdom is justified of all her, her children. Meaning, the wisdom, the love and wisdom that Christ is, that power in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24, that set us free from any doubt, any fear, any discouragement. And we must remember, even in that Psalm 42, verse 1, he was counseling. And the counsel came from the spirit to his soul because that's where the discouragement was. It was in self-consciousness. Trying to think the things of God. Trying, listen to this. Trying to think the things of God instead of just coming and being drawn by what? By a love that will never let us go. Now, here in verse 36 of Luke 7, it says, And one of the Pharisees desired him, Christ, that he would, that he would what? Eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to meet. He sat down. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner. And when you study this out, you realize here very clearly she was a harlot. She was a prostitute. When she knew that Jesus was also in the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster box of ointment. Something that her living accumulated. When you study this out, what she brought with her was a whole year's wages. And she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. Now we see this. The Pharisee was having a meal, a feast, and that always speaks of a, a, to be a place of fellowship or discussion. And there Jesus was an invited guest, but she wasn't. See, the Pharisee didn't invite her because she was a harlot, she was a prostitute. She knew she was. The Pharisee knew she was. Jesus knew she was too. Everyone in that city where she was from 
knew she was too. See, a woman of the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, he brought this alabaster box, stood at his feet behind him, and she was weeping. Weeping. And began to wash his feet with tears. And we've said before, and we've shared these messages before, tears are a language all to themselves when we can't even articulate what is going on inside of us. Then there, there are tears. There are tears. But he knows every single one of them because in Psalm 56 and verse 9, he has bottled all of our tears, meaning he understands every single one of them. Way above even what we can. You know, there's so much, and I thought about it this morning. There's so much to learn about his beauty. And there's so much that goes as far as so-called false teaching and philosophy that goes against it. And there's just so much. And at one point, I could, I could have gotten overwhelmed with all of this. Overwhelmed with the intensity of the love and truth that he has. But also with all these other things. And, and it was and inwardly, and inwardly and even outwardly, it was causing me to weep this morning. And he just reminded me, and this is what he told me, and this is most important, that we're going to be learning from the moment we received Christ, because that was something that was taught. We never would have come if we it hadn't been, right? From the moment that we received Christ, for all eternity, we're going to learn about a love that loves us and will never let us go. And the thing that he wants us to be occupied with in all of this, these things, and sometimes... You know, they can, there's so much teaching and so much, it seems like this one disagrees with that one, this one disagrees with that one, and what are we supposed to do? That's where we, we're to do one and one thing only. We're just arresting his love. We're not trying to do, because then that comes from the soul. Self-consciousness. Self-consciousness without him experientially. And so the thing that he would have us to know is this. Listen, the most important thing about us this is the most important thing about us, is that he loves us, he's won us, and he'll never, ever let us go. And all he's doing is waiting to be gracious. She began to wash his feet with her tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head. Now we know that a woman's glory in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14 is her hair. Women, they, they're concerned with their hair because it's, it's, the, it's a veil of their glory and their, and their loving submission. That's what it reveals. And it's most important. And, but she wept these tears and did wipe them, his feet, with the hairs of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She broke that alabaster box, see? And her brokenness became such an aroma to Christ because she knew, he knew by the description of her tears. And her tears were, she's a sinner. And she can't do anything about it. And she even hates it. And still can't do anything about it. And, but she, 
She knew enough that his love was there to draw her. That's how she got there. He went there to that Pharisee's house to draw her. He was there, and this is true for us. Before you and I have a desire, before we weep in our desire for intimacy, he's there waiting to be gracious. That's it. Waiting to be gracious. And uh, verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee which had, had told him to come saw this, he spake within himself. He's thinking, does God know the thoughts? Did Christ know the thoughts, even afar off? In Psalm 139, verse 2, he did. He knows our thoughts from afar off. He knew her thoughts even by the language of her tears. And they were broken. And she came helpless and hopeless in herself. And that's what he, he had to allow her to get to so that, so that she could experience a love that will never, ever let her go. And so the Pharisee saw that, and he, he thought within himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who, who and what manner of woman this is that touched him, for she's a sinner. She's a harlot. She's a harlot. Thank God that our Savior, in Luke 19, 10, he came to seek and to save those that were lost. He was the word in Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent his word. That's the fulfillment of John 1 and verse 14. Jesus put on humanity. I'm going to tell you something. He did it for each and every single one of us. And he's doing nothing but waiting to be gracious. There are things that he has to remove out of us. Self-conscious thinking, trying to do something and just resting in his love. Because the only place that we're going to receive from him the only place we can receive that love that only flows through grace is through him humbling us. And that's what we're experiencing. And it's, a, and it's not a bad thing. It is a very, very good thing. Who touched him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering unto him. He didn't ask him a question, but boy, he knew. He's hearing two forms of communication. A Pharisee and judgment comparing himself to, to this uh, prostitute, comparing himself, and then the Lord hearing her tears, her language, and her self-helplessness and hopelessness coming to an end led him, led, led her to him so that she could experience a love that will never let, it, let her go. And that's what he's doing with us. He's confirming in us a love that will never let us go. You see, it's one thing to know all of these things, to learn all of these things, but to do so apart from the intimacy of his love, being love, a love that will never let us go. You see, that's the thing that's going to cause us to go after him. That's the thing that's going to lead us to go to the Bible. We won't go to the Bible to get knowledge, to get theology, to get scholarship. We will go there to find Christ. And when we find him, how will we find him? He's waiting to be gracious. Waiting to be gracious. And Jesus answered this man's thoughts and said, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto you. And he said, Teacher, Master, Teacher, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. 
The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, and what do we have to pay? What did this Pharisee think that he could pay or that he would? When they, when they had nothing to pay, he frankly, quickly, instantly, listen to this, instantly forgave them. You know, instantly when we confess that, that kept out that love that's constantly drawing us, we just simply confess it. We simply confess it because we're in the son of his love in Colossians 1 and 13, accepted there. What more could we want right now than to understand that this love that loves us and will never let us go has positioned us and placed us right in the Son of His love in Ephesians 1, 6, meaning He loves us just like the Son. Does anything else get our interest? Is it wanting to know the Word but yet not experiencing the love of that Savior? You know, we came and certain things have started affecting people that I knew back in in uh, Lenox, Massachusetts. And it was, it was teaching, and that happened in the, the 70s and the 80s, and it still has a dangerous and devastating effect on others because at that time, doctrine was taught to, al- to literally almost the exclusivity of an intimate relationship with Christ. It was going after the doctrine and the, the learning like that to be able to declare it, but yet, there was no intimacy and experience of Christ. And as we've said this before, you take Jesus out of this Bible, you take it out in type and in absolute reality, and what do you have? You have a dead book, no life in it. So he's constantly drawing us to a life, and what is that life? It's a love life. And we need to just rest and be patient, to be patient. Listen, and learn of him, and learn of him, where he knows best and when he knows best to learn of him. And then just to rest in that love that he loves us with. And when they had nothing to pay, frankly, quickly forgave them both. He said to him, Simon, okay, tell me therefore which of them will love him most. Simon answered and said, I suppose that the one to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, You rightly discerned. You rightly discerned. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see her? You you were judging her. You were comparing yourself to her. All the while, I was loving her. Oh, how the enemy tries to convince us that he doesn't love us because of this and because of that thing when we're already in the son of his love. No wonder it says in Romans 14, 22, happy is he, the one that condemns not himself. Because in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation. Happy is the one that condemns not himself, even in the thing that he allows. And he that doubts, you see, that's the counsel of self-consciousness. He that doubts is what? Is damned. If he eat, because he eats not of what? Complete dependence upon what? Christ. And is he not the image and definition to us personally, each individually, of the amount of God's love for us that will never let us go? 
You know, for him to let us go, he'd have to let his son go after he did everything to satisfy him in propitiation to become the substitute for us to be reconciled. And we're already in the son of his love. Well, he said to Simon, you have discerned rightly. He said, do you see this woman? Well, you know, I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet. You didn't. That's what you do. That's what you were supposed to do. A guest would come into your house and you'd give them water so they could wash off the dust because they walked everywhere and then come into the house. You gave me no water for my feet. How many times I've done this? You too. She washed my feet with the tears. He's not a theological God, scholarly. He came, got his hands dirty, his feet dirty. The pure Son of God, the Lamb. And, he, and with her tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. That was the thing that was most precious. She broke an alabaster box. It didn't mean anything to her. And even her own glory apart from him, her hair, didn't mean anything. With the hairs of her head, you gave me no kiss, no kiss, no greeting. The Pharisee wanted him in there. Do you know why? To find fault with him. Do you know what the enemy wants us to do? Somehow, to, to find fault with Christ, to find fault with him, and reasons why he shouldn't love us anymore. When he's already taken care of every single thing about us. You gave me no kiss, but this woman, since she came in, has not ceased kissing my feet. You know why? Because she knew that those feet were going to go to Calvary and deal with what she could not deal with. And, and he was winning her to a love. And that's what he's doing with us constantly, experientially. To a love we'll never come to the end of in Ephesians 3.19. Has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint because of out in that arid desert where they walked, they would always anoint their, their heads. But this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto her, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. <laughs> They're forgiven, and we just confess them. You see, in 1 John 1, 9, we're not praying for forgiveness. We're confessing that we are, and confessing that we're no longer those sins. In Romans 7, 17 and 20. Which are many are forgiven. For she loved much. She loved much. She received much love. You know, that's all he wants to do. That's all he wants to do with us is get us to a place of intimacy so he can much love us. Not trying to seek theology. Not trying to seek knowledge. Nope. Any book that we go to, doesn't matter. We go there, and if we go there rightly, and the only right way to do it is to go there to find Christ, and that's it. That's it, because then the, if, it's, if it's not the case, like happened in the 70s and 80s with people that I, I know to this day, men and women that I know to this day, you will, you will take teaching and doctrines 
And the enemy will use those and have you more occupied with those than intimacy with Christ and even use the teachings about Christ to separate you from intimacy with Christ. He, and he's irreplaceable and his love is irreplaceable. And he has to bring us to a place to get us out of self-consciousness because is that where we experience his love? When it's about ourselves? When it is? No. No. But to whom little, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said unto her, your sins are forgiven. Mm -hmm. How could he say that? Well, do we remember his prayer, his high priestly prayer in John the 17th chapter and verse 11, 21 and 22? He desired oneness. And what is oneness? It's the intimacy of a love that will never let us go. Never, ever let us go. He that comes to me, and I will in no wise cast out, in John 6, verse 37. This is experiential, too, as well, of course, positional in Christ. Because my Father is greater than all. He said that in the 39th verse. We have the Father and the Son and God the Holy Spirit that proceeds from both, who's in us, who will never let us go. And that's why the... The prayer that God gave the Apostle Paul for individuals that are the church, that, that he gave them, I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. And guess what? Faithful is he, in verse 24, who has called you, who will what? Who will also do it? And what does God not do in us that he hasn't already done for us? And he did it with a love. And it was a love that, that flowed through grace. And that's why even it says in John 1.16, it's grace upon grace to experience a truth that Christ is that never changes. Never changes. He said unto her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus said in John 17 and verse 4, as he's facing the cross, he says, I've already finished the work. Notice that? The cross became the declaration of that. A love that wouldn't let you and I go in the midst of evil. will never let us go. Never. Oh, he wants us to let him go. Yeah. The only thing is, no matter what, if we left this life, instantly we're with him, just like he is with us right now, who will never let us go. Well, and they, sat at, they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgives sins also? And he said to the woman, your faith has delivered you. Now go in peace. Go in peace. Because Christ is our peace. He's our peace. She came in. She came in. Every single person in that city knew she was a harlot, prostitute. They couldn't do a thing about it. They couldn't be bothered. She knew she was. And she hated it as much as she went back to it and couldn't get victory in Romans 7, 18. How to perform that which is good, I find not. Because I find then a law in me in Romans 7, 21 that when I would desire to do good, and this is what can cause weeping too, evil's present with me. When I'm trying to do it, 
apart from resting in his love. Trying to figure this book out apart from his love that will never let us go. Never, never let us go. She knew she was a sinner. She couldn't do a thing about it. Pharisee could have cared less, thought way less of her, because that love that was about to get a hold of her and keep her forever like us, that Pharisee never knew. He never knew. And when I don't know the intimacy of his love, a love that will not let us go, then all I will do end up is judging others and judging God, thinking less of them than the least. Isn't it interesting? Paul, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he said, I am not even qualified to be called an apostle. He said, because I persecuted the church, the thing that's closest to the heart of Christ. He said, I persecuted the church. He said, but I am what I am by what? The grace. You see, it's grace upon grace, learning more and more about the truth of a love that will never let us go. He said, but I, but I am what I am by the grace of God. And I labored more abundantly than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, in me and through me. Then he said in Ephesians 3.8, he said, I am less than the least of all the saints. You know what he was saying? He says, anytime I go back to the soul and get self-conscious, that's what I am. I'm less than the least of all the saints. That this call to preach this incredible love that Christ is, a love that God would give his son that would never let us go, that I should be able to preach him. Then he said in, in uh, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, he said, he said, I am the chief of sinners. That's right. In God's estimation, in God's estimation, who's the chief? Who's the chief of sinners? At every one of us. Every one of us. But what did his love do? What did his love do? He crucified the old. Romans 6, 1 through 6, he crucified it. Paid for all of our sins through the, the Father being propitiated to the sin question so that he could be the substitute that whereby we would be reconciled to God. And who is God? God is what? Love. That is what? Now in Christ will what? Never what? Never let us go. Meaning, he never stops loving us. Never. And that's why he even washes our feet. Our feet. In John 13, 4, right through 10. 4, right through 10. And that had to do with forgiveness. That's right. And even when he forgives us, and our confession in 1 John 1, 9 is what? Forgiveness is what? Is once again him confirming his love. He will never, never let us go. We're not our sins. He knows our tears. He knows our tears, each and every single one of them. He bottles them. Because in Revelation 7, 17, in Revelation 21 and verse 4, he wipes away all tears, meaning he, does, he has done away with everything that would keep him from us. Now he has to work that love in us 
to keep away everything in us that would keep us from him. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. And Father, thank you so much for your love that preserves us and keeps us. Thank you so much for your love. But your love that was manifested in and through Christ is even greater. It's even greater because it's grace. Because what grace is, as we have learned and we're learning, is that love functions right in the midst of evil. Conquers it. Goes above it. Goes underneath and pulls it down and conquers it. And lifts us up to a place where we once again realize, oh, that's right. When I don't know when I get confused and even when these are new beautiful things that are mine in you and I don't yet understand them, you still want me to rest. And to be still and know that you're God, the God who loves me with a love that never lets us go. And thank you so much, God, for your love for each of us. Thank you that you know our tears. You know them. You, even, you know our groans in Romans 8, verse 36. You know them. And even when we can't articulate those groans, oh God, you know them through the Holy Spirit that you put in us. And thank you, Lord. We have two comforters constantly. And comfort speaks of a place of rest, even in the midst of sorrow. We have Christ comforting us interceding for us with a love that will never let us go above us and here with us on this earth until we see him in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, face to face, we have the Holy Spirit in us, comforting us through what you have accomplished in your so great love that will never let us go. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.